Okay, welcome to the School of Faith podcast and our School of Faith channel. I'm here with my friend, uh, our guest, AJ Swoboda, Dr. AJ Swoboda. And uh, AJ, I have your bio here that I want to read to faithfully represent who you are, but um, I also want us to color it a little bit. AJ, you've been a friend uh, to me, an encouragement to me in writing. You've challenged me in uh, writing and teaching. And I told you the first time we met, I think, I kind of want to be you when I grow up in some ways, in a lot of ways, um, and uh, especially with your beard now. So thank you for joining us, bro. You're welcome. Yes, <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's a joy to, to, to represent all the all the beards of the world to you. <laughs> AJ, you are the, uh, I have it right here, Assistant Professor of Bible Theology and World Christianity at Bushnell University. That's right. In the great Eugene, Oregon, just a little bit away from my hometown of Portland, Oregon. And you were a pastor for years in Portland. That's when we met. Um, how long were you pastoring in, in Portland? I know before that you were a pastor. You've been a pastor for how long? Yeah, for 10 years, uh, my wife and I were actually college pastors at the University of Oregon, which is just across the street from where we're at right now. Yeah. And then for 10 years, uh, about 10 years after that, uh, we were church planters and established a church in uh, urban Portland called Theophilus, which is continues to this day and is um, really having a, 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 an impact in Southeast Portland. So um, we were there for about 10 years and that time in Portland really did shape, uh, obviously, as it did you, shaped a lot about who I am. Yeah, for sure. And it, I think it comes out uh, in this book. You know, I, it was funny when you told me what you were writing about and you were, uh, you know, sending me the book. I thought you are the perfect person to write this book. And the book is called After Doubt. And uh, it's about deconstruction, which we're going to talk about right now. We're going to talk, get into that subject, what that word means. It's about doubting in our faith, but, but keeping our faith through the doubts and through the deconstruction. I thought, AJ, you are the perfect person to write this book. And then I was surprised when I actually opened the book, you were like, I think I'm the perfect person to write this book, <laughs> which I thought was so uh, courageous, but also so true. Um, and AJ, you've written great books, Subversive Sabbath on the Sabbath. You've one of, I think my favorite book you wrote is The Dusty Ones. I love that book um, and A Glorious Dark. And you've explored in a lot of your work, like the difficult things of Christianity, wandering or like the in-between, the tension, A Glorious Dark was kind of exploring Holy Saturday, which we're approaching here pretty quickly, and, and uh, that, that tension between death and life and all that stuff. But help us, I, I, the first question I want you to really speak to is like, um, I don't want you to necessarily answer why did you write this book? I actually think it's very clear in the book why you wrote the book. I want you to say, what was the magnetic pull just towards the word deconstruction and doubt? Because I know you have a pastor's heart, and I'm curious, like, what was what was the pastoral urgency that you felt around doubt and deconstruction? Yeah, you made an interesting comment. You said a, a number of my books actually have circled around the same theme. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think I think he's a mutual friend, Preston Sprinkle. He yeah. he has. Um, I, I like the way he puts it. He says, when you look at um, most of my books, they deal with the dark side of Christianity, and by that, the the underbelly, the stuff that we often don't don't talk about when it comes to our struggles and our doubts. I think I wrote this book for two main reasons. I think I wrote it, first of all, uh, as a book that I wish I could have read 10 years ago. Um, I, about 10, I would say 10 to 15 years ago, that period of time, I went through my own uh, deconstruction period that was adjacent to my seminary years. And the trajectory in my life was, was really leaning in one direction. And that was 
less and less about receiving the faith and more and more and more about asking questions about it. And it was uh, a trajectory that um, I woke up to, um, as it were, and I began to see some really dark sides to the deconstruction journey. Um, there are some, as well, some very important and beneficial things about a deconstruction journey. And that's the, the challenge is that we often have this sort of ideological church. The conservatives will tell us that all deconstruction is bad. It's demonic, run from it. And so they demonize deconstruction. And then the progressive left uh, will valorize it and almost make it a requirement to, to follow Jesus and be a Christian. And I feel like this demonization and this valorization absolutely neglects the way of Jesus. And that, that the way of Jesus walks through both of these extremes in a completely different way. Um, so number one, I, I wrote this because I wish I had that third way 15 years ago. Um, then the third, I think the second reason that I wrote this book is as a pastor and as a, as a professor and as having been a college pastor, I have sat in the front row now just too many times watching young people deconstruct their faith and do so without any sense of clarity about where they're going. There's a, uh, there's a philosopher by the name of Paul Ricoeur, uh, who's, who uh, years ago coined this phrase, and he said it was his greatest concern about the postmodern world. He called it unbounded deconstruction. And his idea is a form of deconstruction that has no goal. It is just to rip it apart. And that form of deconstruction is killing people. It is, it is killing the faith. It is killing so many, so many people right now. And uh, I think the way of Jesus is different. So let's just take one step back to say, if you, I think when people hear deconstruction, they have their own definition in their mind or even doubt. How would you define those two terms? Yeah, because I think they're actually different. I don't yeah. think they're the same thing. Um, but in the book, I talk about them as very adjacent concepts because I do think that they they share some similar space. Um, doubt, when when we read the, the Thomas narrative in the Gospels, we have a, a disciple who walks through doubt. doubt. We call him Doubting Thomas. The Bible never calls him that, but we call him that. Um, doubting Thomas, who is is really struggling to believe the resurrected Jesus. He's having a hard time believing Jesus is resurrected. I think doubt, a way to helpful, a way to, to, to sort of describe doubt is that doubt is struggling to believe things that we do hold. So it's, it's really struggling to believe something that we are trying to believe. You know, it's, it's a, there's a tension where we, it's that prayer of the man who's, you know, child uh, needed healing. I, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. It's that tension of, I want to believe, but man, I'm really struggling. Deconstruction, on the other hand. So one is doubt happens to you. <laughs> Deconstruction is a bit more active. And it is, it is the intentional dismantling of certain beliefs. So deconstruction is, you know, a building being pulled apart. It's a cookie being crumbled so you can make pie crust. It's, but in, in theology, deconstruction is intentionally pulling apart uh, beliefs in order to arrive at, at new beliefs. And again, there are so many important reasons to deconstruct. Jesus deconstructed. When we read Matthew 5 through 7, when he says, I have, you know, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he is deconstructing bad interpretations of the Bible. And so not all deconstruction is bad. Sometimes we need to deconstruct false ideas of God in order to be able to worship God appropriately. Yeah. 
I love what you say about Jesus's deconstruction and his path towards faithful interpretation and not just like throwing everything out, which is seeming that bad deconstruction is kind of setting a bomb off and just letting what happens have happened instead of carefully dismantling the bad theologies and interpretations and things like that. I think one of the most surprising things that I learned through this book, AJ, that I love, and again, if you guys um, need to need to pick this up, it's called After Doubt by, by AJ Swoboda. AJ, this part of your book, I wanted to reread and reread, and it's kind of throughout all of it, but it's mostly in the beginning. Two words that really surprised me that I had never thought about with doubt and deconstruction. Uh, colonialization and, and, and privilege were words that you used to kind of flip the script on what we think we're doing when we're deconstructing. Um, could you kind of speak to those two terms and why you threw them into this book? It's pretty controversial, but I also am thinking it's like deeply accurate and something that most Western Christians are completely unaware that they have, you know, I, th I think this is another, I don't want to quote you out of context, but I think the subtle racism, I think is something you've talked about a little bit in uh, deconstruction. Can we go there right now? And you can speak to that yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you're going to need to give me a few minutes to describe yep. it. Please, so, please take them. Okay with me talking for a bit. Yeah. Um, I need to, I need to be very clear before I answer the question. I need to be very clear that this book is not an attempt to get liberals to become conservatives. And this is not an attempt to get conservatives to become liberals. I, I go out of my way in the book to make that clear over and over and over and over again. The goal is that all liberals and all conservatives would bend their knee at Jesus. <laughs> that is the goal. Okay. I will say, though, this is a part of the book that where I, I, I offer a fairly strong critique of what you and I would call progressive Christianity, okay? Um, so in my seminary experience, I had this experience of going to seminary and being handed a beautiful set of tools to dissect scripture and, you know, learn the languages, Greek and Hebrew, to, to know... A, a lot to learn a lot about the Bible, the background of the Bible, and the background of the Bible is a messy story. I mean, how the Bible came together and how it's weaved together. It's this beautiful, complex book. <clears throat> but, but a big part of my graduate education was questioning um, the received faith. I mean, questioning the faith that has been handed down from generation to generation to generation. And I remember there was there was. Uh, there was one story where I particularly remember um, I had I've been in a class on the book of Exodus and I remember leading a Bible study in our church on Exodus and I remember having a whole session on whether Moses wrote uh, Exodus or not which by the way is a legitimately important question it's not like this is not an important question but I, I remember sort of waxing eloquent for an hour on did Moses really read this and I left that Bible study and I felt so convicted in the Holy Spirit that I was not doing that to serve the people. I was doing it because I really wanted to look smart. And really what was happening was I was using my tools of knowledge for power and as a point of privilege. I was using it as a way to control and gain influence. <clears throat> that experience really impacted me. I don't know that there may, could be a whole lot of adjacent reasons why that's the case. But 
my heart was I was using the tools of deconstruction as a way to gain power. Uh, there was a second story of going to Tunisia. I went to the, the North African country of Tunisia, uh, which I outlined this story in the book. And there in Tunisia, it's 99.9% .9 Muslim. And we went on this sort of mission cultural exchange. And we went to this one city where in the city of like 2 million people, there are something like 13 Christians, known Christians in the city. And I, as a sort of white, you know, evangelical guy, wanted to meet the Christians and the missions agency. I was really excited that, you know, they'll let us meet them. This group of Christians that meet underground under fear for death. I mean, it's, it, it's a pretty hairy situation. And the mission agency wouldn't let us meet with them. And I was perplexed, like, why won't you let us? And they said to me, because we don't want your white liberal theology to rub off them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. And that, I don't know what it was, something about that clicked in my heart and my soul. And I began to see that the form of deconstructed Christianity that, that does not embrace Jesus as the way to God, that does not embrace kind of historic Christian visions of sexuality, that does not uh, embrace um, scripture as the inspired truth of God, is, is actually a form of faith that is hostile to those 13 Christians in a city of 2 million in, 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 in Tunisia. And that, and that actually what, what that version of Christianity is, is really a, a form of kind of progressive religion that is colonial. Um, it, it actually is a violence to the actual people of color in, in, in the world, in, in non-American spaces, who um, are trying to follow Jesus uh, in, in a nation where they can get killed for what they believe. And it really, you know, <laughs> okay. you and I lived in Portland for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I, as a white guy, was to start a Mexican food cart and claimed I make the best Mexican food. They would, that we have a word for that. It's called cultural appropriation. Yeah. But if I, as a white person, take the Christian faith of the earliest Christians, who are all people of color, by the way, most of them were, uh, there's no white guy in the room right. writing the Nicene Creed. Uh, and I take their faith and and, and change it to what I want it to say, then places like Portland call me evolved, thoughtful, and forward-thinking. And to me, that reveals, I think, a very dangerous hypocrisy. Um, it is actually biblical Christianity that is the faith of the person of color in Tunisia and for the slave and for the early church. And I think we are called to embrace their faith and not put on them our, our spin. And I should say, the conservative side is as guilty as the left for wedding white nationalism to the gospel. And that is as equally colonial, it is as equally destructive, and it is as equally demonic. And again, this we see this is not a left issue. This is a 
this is a this is a, a by uh, bipartisan. <laughs> yes. So does that make sense? It, it makes total sense. And, it, and I felt like you did. And this is where I would encourage people to pick up the book. You did great service to that argument. But I love in this book how teased out you got into it. And I think one of the things you mentioned is like, we have to ask the question, which Christianity are we deconstructing, right? Like, like are we deconstructing um, white American Christianity? Then let's do that. Let's have that conversation. But are we deconstructing the faith of the brothers and sisters in Tunisia? Is that the faith that we want to attack? You yes. know, is, is the faith of our brothers and sisters in China the one we like? Yes. The, the, when people say, I have problems with the church, I have problems with that language because I don't know which church. Yes. Yeah, when we say, when, and, and you brought up the, the, the racism conversation, Esau Macaulay talks about this often yes. in Reading While Black, which is an incredible book um, on, on hermeneutics from, from a, a perspective that really, I think, sh should be reshaping our, ours in a deep way. Uh, he says, and, and I think he's absolutely right, even when we say the church is dying, um, what we really mean, and you know, what the church is dying, we say that all the time, when the studies are coming out, the church is dying. What we really mean uh, is white churches are dying. Uh, when in reality, uh, on a global scale, um, the church is absolutely exploding among people who have dark skin. Um, uh, you look uh, in places like China, the underground church, the group, what is believed to be the largest revival in Christian history is happening in Iran right now, uh, in Africa, every, every, it, it, what's happening is that <laughs> the the church among really white affluent people is 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 dying, and it turns out it's like Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said it's it's really hard for the kingdom to come uh, to the rich. It's almost like Jesus knew what he was he was saying. <laughs> yeah, among places of poverty and and places where there are people of color, the gospel is actually exploding right now. Yes, yes. And that, that leads me to a question I really wanted to kick around with you, AJ, because of your deep love for the church. As a, a college pastor for years, a planting pastor in Portland, I think as someone too, AJ, as a, you're, you're now in the academic world kind of full time, but I see you as a pastoral presence in the academic world, which I love. I think that's so needed for young people. Um, this is a quote that jumped out to me from your book. Listening to the whispers of Western culture one gets the impression that God can easily be found anywhere but the church, in the woods, in activism, and in silence. It's as though we believe abandoning the church is the best way of loving God. Mm. So why is the church an essential and even a trustworthy partner in our doubt and deconstruction? Yeah. Well, I'm going to guess that when people are listening to this particular interview— they are likely beginning to come out of being essentially in their head for a whole year of, of being online for the, for the last year. It, it's been really, really uh, quite, a, quite an interesting experience watching people come back to church who have spent yeah. the last year being formed by the liturgies of social media, Fox News and CNN, and what that does to our brains when we are disconnected from the actual on the ground uh, uh, body of Christ. And, I think I think I'm fair to I think it's absolutely fair to say that in the last year, uh, there's been a pretty good re-education program going on for many of us that we 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 have been so 
disengaged from real relationships that we've been shaped more by what trends on Twitter than the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not, this is all of us. I I would put myself in this category. Um, I have a a family member who um, is in AA. She's in recovery. She she has a beautiful story. And she, she, she told me that for AA, they um, immediately when COVID hit, they tried doing uh, AA meetings over Zoom. And she said, immediately they figured out it doesn't work. You can't have AA meetings over Zoom. And there's only one, there's one main reason why. Uh, you can't have AA meetings over Zoom because you can't smell anything. And it turns out when you're in recovery, the only, one of the only ways that you know if somebody's being honest or not is you can smell them. Uh, if, because uh, you can, you, you know, you're in a room, you can tell if somebody comes in drunk or not. Yeah. And something is really lost when we can't smell. Um, something is lost when we can't smell and touch each other. And it, I think in, ult, in ultimate reality, it actually gives us a really great opportunity to be deceptive. Um, we can pretend online, but you can't really pretend when you can smell each other. Um, I, I think that the church, I mean, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a Roman Catholic. I'm a Catholic in, with the big C sense, you know, a Catholic in terms of the, the whole church, uh, the global body of Christ. I'm not a Roman Catholic. But I will say, uh, I have been very, it is very appealing to me, the Catholic perspective on the Eucharist. Because for the Roman Catholics, church is not church unless you have the physical body and blood of Christ. And I'm not a transubstantiationist. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is something is lost when we don't have to be in the room together. Um, and I'll tell you, man, I, when I'm in a room of people, I can't pretend. I, I just can't. I can pretend for a little bit, but I can't pretend. This is my way of saying, um, I would encourage everybody listening to this. Um, get your, when you can, get your butt back among real flesh and blood. Because we can smell you. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. Yeah, and I, I, I even think just the simple fact of showing up somewhere and someone noticing you and seeing you and saying your name in the online church world. I'm a number, you know, on the YouTube who's watching this list. When I show up to church, I'm, Hey, Chris, right. Hey, how are you? And it's being seen and acknowledged. Even when I might come to church with doubt or come to church in my own head or whatever, I can show up and be acknowledged and seen and known in, in a, in a space and in a way that just is not necessarily possible, even, even over zoom. Um, another, another part of your, your book, I wanted to touch on AJ that I really loved was your, you had a chapter, an entire chapter dedicated to feelings, which I thought was a unique choice. Um, what, what do you wish that people like listening to this, who are either going through deconstruction or maybe they have a friend or a family member doubting, what do you wish that people who are in those spaces, like what they knew about feelings and what they, maybe what the scriptures would say? Because I think traditionally we, we separate in, in, in Western ideologies, we leave our feelings over here. And then we say, I'm going to do the intellectual work of understanding Christianity. 
yeah. and we kind of don't acknowledge some of the feelings. So what do you wish people knew about feelings that they well, that were in deconstruction? Yeah, I, you just hit the nail on the head. I think, I think for a lot of young people that are raised in the church, particularly sort of Western evangelical-ish environments, we, we tend to have a very heady faith. And as a result, uh, when we grow up and, and start seeing a world of injustice, we start asking the question, why, why weren't people ticked about this when I was in church as a kid? Why weren't people mad about these issues back there? And, and I've often, you know, I, I've often stated to my own demise and made, and made some enemies by saying this, but, you know, when you, when we look at the, 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 the Black Lives Matter movement as a result of um, so many stories of, um, uh, of so, so many stories of, um, of, of Black people who were um, uh, either slaughtered, harmed, uh, injustice done at the hands of, um, of police. That, that sense of anger, that sense of rage that so many feel, I think is the result of the fact that I think a lot of people don't see Christians getting angry about these things. And so the protests are in the streets because they didn't happen in the pews. You know, they, they have to happen somewhere because the these emotions, we should be angry about injustice. And that, you know, the, I, I think it was that we have 273 emotions or something like that. We are emotional beings because God is an emotional God. We were created in his image. Emotions aren't bad. God gets mad in the Bible. God gets jealous in the Bible. Uh, God feels compassion in the Bible. God gets merciful in the Bible. God has emotions and we're emotional because God is an emotional God. The problem is what's happening, I think now, what the, the problem is, is we have now slipped into this new dimension that both N.T. Wright and Alistair McIntyre call emotivism. And rather than shaping our emotions around biblical reality and biblical truth, we are now beginning to shape biblical truth around our feelings. And what happens, you know, we, we all have this experience. Um, I, I've, you know, <laughs> I'm a college professor. I've been a pastor. Um, I've probably had a hundred young people come out of the closet to me. And when that happens, you know, that what a sacred moment when somebody's actually honest about what they're going through and you honor that and listen. Um, but when you're in that experience and you're sitting on the other side and you, you have kind of this, you know, ancient belief system that doesn't reflect our culture around us, you're yeah. stuck in the first century as it were. Um, that's a painful thing where the, the person's emotions and story and your theology come a little bit in contact. Yeah. And what often happens is um, because we experience those very painful emotions, uh, rather than just letting the emotions be what they are, we actually begin to shape our theology around our emotions. And I think it's pretty fair to say that when our theology is, when we make theological decisions for emotional purposes, not good things start happening. Yeah. And what, what that chapter is intended to do, it's intended to get Christians start actually being honest about their emotions so that they can stop making theological decisions based on those emotions. Because when we can name those emotions, um, we, can, we can begin to be honest about what is, well, okay, what is, what does God say? And what am I feeling? And not bending what God has said around what I'm feeling. Uh, so I think, Christians need to learn how to feel again and be like the Psalms. You know, when somebody pointed this out to me, a colleague at, at Fuller Seminary said, 
that in mainline traditions that that still use the, the lectionary they have there's just all these psalms in the old testament called imprecatory psalms that are psalms of rage they are psalms of rage i mean when you read the imprecatory psalms they are david and the authors essentially saying god why didn't you just punch in the mouth of my enemies these rageful these rageful psalms yeah and uh, a, a colleague of mine at Fuller pointed out that in the mainland tradition, they've stopped reading those in the in the lectionary readings because those emotions are just too heavy for church services. I I I think we do a violation, a disservice to God's people when we don't read the Psalms of Rage, because they are God's protest. They are God's protest against the injustice of the world, and when we begin to realize that God gets angry about sin. Holy moly, I can get on his team. Yeah, yeah. And when, and even when we realize our rage against our own rage against injustice is not only God's own rage against injustice, but also some rage that has been sitting with the church for thousands of years. So it makes me think in a really great way, I am not this unique individual who suddenly came to awareness that the church is not doing enough about justice issues or something. Actually, when I'm angry about that, I can feel that and know my brothers and sisters for thousands of years have been declaring that, you know, even since to your point before Christ in the Psalms um, have joined with that. And that's more of a historic legacy. AJ, do you think like when I was reading that chapter, I was reflecting on a lot of moments I've had as a pastor when people are telling me their own intellectual problems with the faith mm-hmm. I'm also trying to ask sometimes like what what's behind that re- like there's a reason behind the reason or there's a question behind the question yes. are a, is do you are you finding that a lot of the questions behind the questions or the statements behind the statements are emotional um yeah. is sometimes the intellectual problems with the faith uh, in some ways like a smoke screen um, to, to, to something we just haven't dealt with in the past or not to get super therapeutic with it, but like, you know, we're, we're pastors and theologians, you and I, so I don't want to claim that we have any type of psychological mastery, but it is interesting to me. Sometimes I just want to ask that person, you know, did someone hurt you? You know, it was there, was there something that happened in your life that led you to this question? How would you, how would you shepherd us in that in that kind of yeah. question before before the question thing, Chris, great great question. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, two, I think two immediate responses. Um, the the first is when when somebody sits in my office, I'm sitting here in my office for office hours, and says, you know, I'm I'm really starting to pull my faith apart. I'm really struggling. I got students that are raised in the church who are now coming yeah. and ask questions, and and I think the most important thing that I can do to serve that student. Or, 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 or somebody that's walking through that experience is to get to the reason why they're doing it, right? So what, so, so on one hand, if a student comes into my room and says, you know, I'm really questioning some of the things I was handed in my, my home church that do not reflect what I'm reading in the Bible. And honestly, I was handed some really bad ideas about Jesus and I really want to follow Jesus and I'm going to do whatever it takes to undo stuff that is not Jesus-y. When, when somebody's deconstructing for that reason, I want to just stand up and give them a slow clap. I mean, I, yeah. I want to deconstruct away. If you're, yep. de- you're doing it because you love God with all your heart and you want all of your ideas to submit to the Lord, your God, your maker, deconstruct. If that is the reason you're doing it, go away. Do, uh, do it. Go all the way. Yeah. 
But often, <laughs> the reason why somebody's deconstructing is a little less altruistic than that, a little less Jesus-centered. And if really, at the end of the day, sometimes I think we deconstruct, frankly, because we're just really tired of having a book telling us stuff we don't want to hear. Uh, and really, at the end of the day, we're deconstructing our faith because honestly, we just want to be able to sleep with who we want to sleep with. Yeah. And honestly, we want to be able to do what we want to do. And we're tired of having somebody tell us what to do. If that is the reason you're deconstructing, I will be the first to tell you. And I'm not, I'm not I don't want to sound like a fundamentalist here, but I'm going to be the first to tell you that is going to be a very dark road mm -hmm. that will lead to a moment in history where you're going to look back and go, I have abandoned my first love. Mm -hmm. And so I think getting behind that, the why is very, very, very important. Are we deconstructing because we love Jesus with all of our heart? Or are we deconstructing because honestly, we want to be liberated and be able to do what we want to do? I think the second thing is I have been struck at how many times the parable of the prodigal son has come back to me as I've been traveling, writing, and talking about this deconstruction stuff. You have this younger son who runs away with the inheritance. He leaves his father and his older brother in home at home, and he runs off with the father's inheritance. And he has this moment during a famine where he goes, I want to come home. He comes home. And I have, I, it has just come back to me over and over and over again. Why did he run away? Why would you run away? Why would you run away? And I am entirely convinced that the younger son ran away because he was tired of the older brother. Um, and that something happened. He saw something the older brother was doing, who, when he comes back, is this hyper-religious, rigid guy who doesn't have any room for grace. I think the older brother pushed the younger son away from the father. And more often than not, I don't see people who are deconstructing Christianity because they've got a great intellectual argument. I see a lot of people walking away from the father because they got really hurt by one of the father's other kids. Wow. We end up running away from the father uh, because an older son was, was really, we see how broken the church is. And we're like, how do I, how do I do this? How do I follow Jesus anymore? But I want to say, and again, I don't, I, I don't want to come across as, as though this oversimplifies the issue because there are a lot of complex issues here. Um, but I think rejecting the story of Jesus because of the silliness of one of Jesus's other children uh, is, is a really bad reason to walk away from Jesus. <laughs> um, Jesus is too good to let the rigid people all get him. So I would say stay to the father and, and don't run away because the older son. Yeah. It's a clear, you know, it's the classic DC talk album. <laughs> uh, the, the, the single greatest cause of atheism today uh, are, are Christians yeah. and the older sons. Yeah. Um, and Jesus is just too good. He's just too good yeah. to abandon because you've met some bad Christians. <laughs> Jesus met some bad Christians. When you read the Gospels, it is amazing how many times Jesus has to tell the disciples, you guys don't get it. You don't get it. But that doesn't mean we should abandon it. Yeah. Well, let's 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 end here, AJ. I wonder if what you just said you could you could just kind of take to the next level, which is for those in in their own heads or struggling and things are swirling about doubts with the faith or just like, man, I just went a year without going to church and um, you know, 
maybe they haven't even felt that different, right? Maybe they've gone a whole year without church and they're like, maybe I don't even need to go. Could you cast a little bit of a vision? What you just said, Jesus is too good. Pull our eyes up a little bit as we close here and just say like, what is so good about Jesus and his church that should keep us committed um, even when we're struggling and being honest with, with our, our own doubts? Yeah. C.S. Lewis in uh, one of his um, in one of his writings makes uh, what I believe to be an arresting an arresting image. He he says finding Jesus and being found by Jesus is like finding a part of a symphony that has been lost for generations. It's like finding it's like finding this this secret. <laughs> when, I, when, I was, when I was a kid, I uh, watched Empire Strikes Back over and over and over again. But the only way I watched Empire Strikes Back was my parents had taped it. But the first five minutes of Empire Strikes Back, uh, they had accidentally taped over with a commercial. And so it wasn't until I was like 25 years old that I saw the first five minutes of Empire Strikes Back. And when you see the first five minutes of Empire Strikes Back, it changes the entire movie. Like you, <laughs> yeah, you the whole thing. Living your life without loving God, loving Jesus, being with God's people is like living your life with five minutes of Beethoven's symphony just omitted. It's like having five minutes of Empire Strikes Back just not there. And I can't, I can't even imagine what life would be like not waking up in the morning and knowing I'm loved by the guy that created Saturn. I don't even know what that would be like. It, I, I think we have a word for it. I think we call it hell. Hmm. To not know every day you are God's flipping beloved. Hmm. And that you were known before you were made. You were known in your mother's womb that there is somebody who gives you purpose and power and authority and rulership and love and mercy and compassion to not live with that is hell. I, it, is yeah. it is unnatural to not know the love of God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I would say, yeah, that's like saying, well, why would you want to go to hell? Well, I don't know. Why in the world would you not want that? And I, I love the way that you talk about the gospel in, in this book, AJ, and what you just said. It is more about receiving than doing. And so what, you're, what the vision you're giving to me today is how am I to receive God's love today? How am I to see that he loves me? As opposed to how am I going to perform morally or what am I going to believe intellectually? Um, to, to me, the, the captivating vision you just painted for us is where can I see in my life evidence that God loves me? And when I don't see the evidence, how do I press into true faith and trust that what he says about me is more true than what I say about me? Yeah. And that if we can hold on to that, we can do so much talk about deconstruction and doubt if we're holding on to God loves me. 
I'm receiving God's love. Yep. Um, can I can I close, Chris? Yeah, please. So profound, and and I guess close with an image in in the story of Thomas, um, in in John 20, when Thomas is having a hard time believing that Jesus is resurrected, the other ten disciples have seen the resurrected Christ. Thomas has. And then John makes this very passing comment. He says, a week later, Jesus showed up and showed Thomas's body. And Thomas believes. That phrase, a week later to me, here's what I love about that. The, the believing community made space for a doubter for a whole week before Jesus shows up. Mm. And you have a doubter who remains among the faithful even in his doubt. In these moments, if you are wrestling with doubt, deconstruction, wrestle away. But for God's sake, do it with us. Don't do it alone. Please don't replace the church with your favorite podcast. Don't, go, don't, don't replace the church with the internet. For God's sake, do it among us. Do it with us. Because we're the ones on the ground who love you. And we're the ones on the ground who are going to be there for you when you're, when you're in the hospital. Your favorite podcaster ain't going to come and help. We're here. Hmm. So don't replace us. Hmm. We want to do it with you. Amen. Amen. AJ, thank you so much for your book, After Doubt, for your ministry of writing and teaching, and for taking the time to, to chat with us. You you have blessed us. Thank you, man. Well, Chris, really, really appreciate it. Great pastor at a really hard time in history. Mm -hmm. Keep it up. Thanks, man. All right.